Welcome to EdTech Insiders, where we speak with founders, operators, investors, and thought leaders in the education technology industry and report on cutting-edge news in this fast-evolving field from around the globe. From AI to XR to K-12 to L&D, you'll find everything you need here on EdTech Insiders. And if you like the podcast, please give us a rating and a review so others can find it more easily. All right, EdTech Insider listeners, we have an extra special interview for today's podcast. The one, the only, Ryan Craig, Managing Director of Achieve Partners, author of The Gap Letter, as well as the upcoming Apprentice Nation, also just godfather of EdTech Media. I mean, there's a way in which we all walk in your footsteps, Ryan. So great to have you here today. Excited to talk about what's going on in AI universe as well as university universe. Welcome to the pod. Ah, well, it's about time and uh, good to see you both. And I'm a big fan. So thanks. It's great to be here. We are very big fans of yours as well. So let's talk about some of the issues you've been covering in the Gap Letter. You've been beating the drum for a long time about how universities have just not been pulling their weight in helping uh, students for the workforce in a really clear way, not giving them direction, not giving them enough skills. You wrote recently about this idea of there being a skills gap and an experience gap and how the skills gap may actually begin to be closed by AI because AI can teach people skills very quickly as well as enhance their skills with these co-pilots. But there's still an experience gap. And that is where the rub lies. Talk to us about the difference between these two. Sure. Well, let me just start by saying that, you know, I try not to be too negative about colleges and universities and that I do think that they're doing as good a job as they've ever done at equipping students and graduates with sort of uh, key core cognitive skills, problem solving skills, uh, communication skills, executive function skills. The problem is the fault lies not with colleges and universities per se, but with digital transformation that is you know, cause the economy and employers and jobs to kind of run away at increasing speed from the skill set that colleges and universities have equipped students with. So, you know, whereas in the you know 1960s, you know, you might graduate looking to get a job at a firm like, you know, the advertising agency portrayed in Mad Men, or in the 1980s, you might try to, you know, look at graduating, trying to get a job at a law firm like in LA Law. Those jobs, they kind of look at you, they'd say, well, you have the degree, this macro credential signaling a set of broad cognitive skills, problem solving skills, communication skills, but not really asking for anything more specific uh, than that. Obviously, at the law firms, you're going to need a law degree, but a lot of it is, you know, do you have those things and, you know, are you able to get along and are you, you know, fun to have at a three martini lunch? So (laughs) we don't have three martini lunches anymore, as far as I know, I don't get invited to them. The workforce has changed in other ways too. Uh, digital transformation has caused, you know, almost all good jobs are digital in some form or fashion. They require digital skills. And it's that digital skills gap, which is really a combination of specific platform skills as well as business knowledge, right? You know, you can't really be effective in using a platform unless you understand the sort of core business functions and processes that that platform is kind of uh, replicating in digital form, right? So that's kind of where we stood. And then, you know, ChatGPT came out and it's pretty clear that digital skills gap is likely to narrow, right? Because all of these platforms are likely within a year or two uh, to have natural language interfaces where you don't really need to know the specific instruction and mechanics in order to accomplish a task. You'll be able to basically get to the result by uh, communicating in natural language with the platform. So I'm not saying that all digital skills gap will disappear, but it will narrow. 
But at the same time, what's likely to happen is that AI and being able to use AI and prompt AI correctly is going to require experience in that specific sector with those business processes and functions. And if you don't have that experience, you won't know what to ask. Right. And so, and because the AI is effectively going to uh, save you from doing the menial tasks that in many cases comprise much of what entry level positions are, are all about, what will happen is that expectations for entry level positions are likely to increase. It will raise the bar for entry level jobs, whereas an entry level job in a couple of years will look a lot like a job that today is asking for two or three years experience, meaning you're going to have to uh, know a little bit about the industry, at least. You're going to have to know a little bit about the job function. You're going to probably ask you to have demonstrated experience in the space because otherwise, what good are you, right? You don't need to be there doing those repetitive menial tasks that have been automated by the AI. You're going to be there to make uh, decisions and judgment and uh, network and do other things that people who've been on the job two or three years are able to do. You know, that's why I say that I think generative AI is likely to narrow the skills gap, turn the experience gap into a bit of a chasm. That's a big problem, right? And those of us in the ed tech space, we spent, you know, much of the last decade trying to narrow that skills gap. And you can do that through education and training. How do you narrow, how do you close that experience gap? Right. So in our view, a lot of that is going to have to come through work integrated learning so that you're actually having actual work experiences or work like experiences while you're going through formal uh, education and apprenticeship. So meaning that a lot of people who today are coming right out of a you know, tuition based uh, education model and going to work for the company they might end up working for for you know, years or decades in some cases are going to end up finding themselves in some kind of, you know, work pathway, earn and learn pathway, where the intention is that they're going to be doing uh, a job, not necessarily the job they're ultimately going to be doing, and they'll be learning along the way, and that probably they'll progress through that pathway uh, to uh, an ultimate and likely different employer on the other end. So those are, of course, the apprenticeship uh, programs that we're building at Achieve and our portfolio companies, like our former portfolio company, Reviture, Skillstorm, Optimum Healthcare IT, Cloud for Good, Helios, and the like. So these are business services companies that we've acquired and are building apprenticeship pathways into them in order to become talent engines for their talent-starved sectors. So we think that's likely going to be a more important model, meaning that all of those sectors, right, cybersecurity, Salesforce, uh, data science, software development, Salesforce Workday, they're going to look more and more to programs and pathways and companies that have built that infrastructure as they think about talent sourcing strategies and where their next generation of workers is going to come from. Because it's through pathways like this that they're going to be able to bring in new talent that will have the equivalent of two, three years experience that that they'll need for entry-level jobs. Yeah. When we were first talking about this, I likened it to you know, the U.S. economy transforming to the Spanish economy, where you basically have like massive unemployment of 20 year olds as they try to break in. One thing that I've been thinking about is I thought we were already heading that way with yeah. free college anyway. We, we are. Maybe. We are. We're well on our way. <laughs> you know, Europe is ahead of us in so many ways. That's not one where I think we want to catch up with them. One thing that is really challenging too is the labor force dynamics because of AI. I'm on a school board. I've been thinking a lot about labor union movement and what AI means for labor union movements. 
And a very common trope you see in labor unions is, you know, protecting the jobs of your existing people against new entrants that are lower costs. And so I also think... I mean, I just jump in. My wife is a television writer and she's on, she's literally on the picket line right now as I speak because one reason is that the television and, and film studios have not agreed to not replace them. Exactly. <laughs> with AI. So that one hits home. Yeah. So if, if you imagine that from a skills and experience gap standpoint, you're closing the skills gap, but expanding the experience gap. And then meanwhile, our social structures around you know, labor are actually making it harder and harder to get into fields and doubling down on protecting jobs. Because I think the middle age worker fear is that either AI straight up replaces me or a kid who knows how to use AI replaces me. And so what do you do? You make experience gap, you know, almost like performative uh, credentialing or performative barriers to make it harder to enter that field or profession. Yeah, it turns the idea of an entry-level job into an oxymoron and turns the labor market in that sector into a bit of a death spiral. Exactly. I totally agree. I, I liken it to the cybersecurity space now, which is probably the most uh, advanced on this, where there really is no such thing as an entry-level position. Even sort of tier one analysts, if you look at the job descriptions, they're asking for sets of skills and certifications that would connote something like two or three years experience. So how do you get in? You probably, you have, it's probably by accident, right? I mean, how do you fall into this? Well, when I hire a cybersecurity company too, I don't want some entry-level dude like being, you know, dependent on that guy for my cybersecurity. I do want somebody who's... Well, and the reason, let's just be clear, the reason that's happened is that, you know, a lot of what used to be tier one is now automated, right? It's built into these products. So, you know, you don't really need tier one. I mean, like what's now called tier one is probably what used to be tier two. What I'd love to hear your thoughts on. So apprenticeship models, this idea of like universities partnering with employers, creating economic, you know, learn and earn opportunities. This sounds very German. It sounds very European. I'm trying to think of what else needs to change for our ecosystem to move in this direction. And what are the political levers? What are the like social levers as well? As That's the, technology. yeah. I mean, in a nutshell, the real problem is that for decades, we've been looking at either colleges, universities, or employers to solve this problem themselves. And that's not how it's happened in other countries. If you look anywhere else in the world where they have a much more robust apprenticeship ecosystem than we do, it's because uh, intermediaries have stepped in and essentially played that role, played the, if you will, general contractor role of building that apprenticeship program. Colleges don't do it. Employers don't do it themselves. In Germany, you know, interestingly enough, it's not the employers or, 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 or the colleges or universities. It's chambers of commerce and trade unions who play that intermediary role. And actually, they're obliged to because that role is written into statute in Germany. So yeah, well, I kind of the, there's a strength in the labor unions there because of this idea that they're constantly restocking with new labor union members. And so it's an interesting death spiral for labor in the U.S. if you end That's up right. being, you know, blocking young people from opportunity. We have a fairly robust apprenticeship uh, system in the construction trades and it's unions who are playing that role. Our problem is that it's not obvious who the intermediary should be in tech and in finance and in healthcare and so forth. And so we need to find them and we ought to have government policy that incentivizes businesses and nonprofits that are positioned to play that role 
uh, to do so. And so you don't need to read the book. I wanted to double click on this work integrated learning concept. You know, one of the things you call out and that we've been talking a lot about on the podcast is these industry specific large language models. You know, we're in the early days of, of generative AI, but Bloomberg already did a finance specific large language model. And we're seeing others start to go in that direction. How do you see the interplay here? Do you feel that, you know, high schools will have to start teaching industry-specific language models? Is that through apprenticeships? Is that through... Yeah, that's exactly the kind of thing. I mean, I think that high schools will teach prompt engineering. I think that's going to be very common. But I think that by the time you get to your, you know, post-high school to your post-secondary pathway or apprenticeship program, uh, you are going to need to be uh, versed in essentially prompt engineering within that specific large language model. Otherwise, you won't be able to do your job. Talk to us a little bit about university systems and how you see them changing. I think this idea of intermediaries is fascinating, but also, you know, the university system is crumbling under the weight of, you know, the high price and questionable ROI. In one of your articles, you wrote, despite dramatic digital transformation, majors remain largely unchanged. Colleges continue to support dozens of so-called, quote-unquote, not-a-job majors long past their sell-by dates. In the Georgia state system, the board only acted to terminate programs that had not admitted a single student in two years and therefore were deemed inactive. What other products have no expiration date? If I'm a university leader listening to this podcast, what am I to do and how should I be thinking about the AI and skills and experience revolution. I think it's very clear. I've been saying for almost a decade now that, you know, the biggest change in, in higher education is actually not technology per se or digital transformation. It's the the expectation that this is going to lead to a good job. That's the priority. And so I think there's still lots of schools that don't get that. I think that you're seeing, particularly since COVID, I now five consecutive years of enrollment declines. And let me just be clear. I'm not including the sort of the top 50 most selective universities who are on their own planet on this. They'll be able to continue to do whatever they want to do for as long as they want to do it. I'm talking about the other 90, you know, 5% of uh, institutions that enroll, you know, everyone else. And those schools that are seeing enrollment declines that are seeing budget crunches and so forth, I need to make decisions as to what's important here. I believe that ultimately uh, they're going to have to, you know, be very clear about programs that lead students to good jobs. And, uh, you know, what the, the crazy thing is they, they already know it or they have the capability of knowing it. They're willfully blind in most cases. And that's really the, you know, all of the policy going on, the, the policy discussions going on in higher education around student loan forgiveness and, you know, OPMs and third party servicers and so forth. It's all a function of the fact that, you know, there's this huge information asymmetry going on where institutions do know or ought to know uh, what programs work for what students. And they continue to yet enroll uh, students who are not going to be successful in programs that are not going to lead them to success. And that's a classic definition of information asymmetry, right? You have the, you know, the colleges are going to, they're repeat sellers, they're selling over and over and over. And the students who are making these enrollment decisions and families making these matriculation decisions, they're making it one time. <laughs> Right. So, you know, in my view, the best way to solve that is not by trying to like put band-aids on it, like through loan forgiveness and, you know, OPM and TPS, but rather to just, you know, turn the model around. And instead of assuming that, you know, every 18 year old should go immediately to tuition based, debt based uh, post-secondary education. What if the expectation was that you worked for a few years first, that you got some work experience, you got your foot on the first rung of a career ladder 
And then you made your post-secondary or subsequent education uh, decision with better information. And the analogy I like to use is, you know, you don't see a lot of people complaining about, you know, people being, you know, misled or uh, making bad decisions about master's degrees. There's some, right? You have the sort of the uh, USC social work with, you know, to you and so forth. But for the most part, we've seen an explosion in master's degrees over the last decade, online master's degrees. They're expensive too, but the people making those decisions are much better informed than individuals who are, you know, entering, making a decision as to whether to enroll in a college or community college for a bachelor's degree or an associate's degree or less than that. So the goal should be that every enrollment decision should be made by someone with at least as much information and experience as someone who's making a master's degree enrollment decision today. And then a lot of these policy problems are likely to go away. We're going to, you know, fix that information asymmetry. And obviously, apprenticeship can play a role in that because if you come out of high school and you go and you do an apprentice-like job for a few years, and by the way, in the book, you know, I talk about someone who goes to work for Starbucks or Chipotle and, you know, enrolls in a, you know, a guild or guild type program where, and again, you know, guild is, is shifting from delivering off-the-shelf online degrees to customized pathways that lead you from point A to point B within that enterprise, that lead, where point B is a good gateway job in that company. So in Chipotle, for example, to become a store manager. So going to work at a Chipotle with a built-in training pathway that leads you to become a store manager in a couple of years, I think that should be as valid a you know post-high school experience as enrolling in any college. If we can make that change, uh, we're going to solve information asymmetry because that individual who's worked at Chipotle for a couple of years becomes a store manager and then is making a decision as to you know what they're going to do next, where they're going to go, is going to undoubtedly make a better decision for themselves and for the broader ecosystem, and including with public funds, right? With you know enhanced income-driven repayment, those are you know taxpayer dollars that are at risk when those decisions are made. That's kind of the big picture here. This idea of information asymmetry between universities and you know the graduates who are looking at them is so powerful. And you've mentioned in previous writings that it's been quite a while since the number one reason why people report that they're going to college is to get that first job, to have a career. Yet the universities continue to just sort of slowly move. And, you know, in this last column, you mentioned that 75% of large public universities actually limit access to some of the highest value majors, especially computer science. They don't hire enough faculty. They weed people out. People come to school wanting computer science because they know it's going to be a valuable career. And the school, you know, sort of derails them or redirects them for their own reasons. Talk to us about that, because I think this is something a lot of people don't realize about the majors. I'm glad you call that out, because I think that's one of the biggest scandals that is not receiving, you know, anywhere near enough attention. There's a bait and switch going on where, you know, you're enrolling in. These are all public universities for the most part. You're enrolling in a state university, including flagship schools, and they just simply aren't willing to pay or can't pay enough to recruit faculty to meet the demand. And so, you know, half to two thirds to three quarters of applicants to these, you know, would be computer science majors and engineering majors are turned away and essentially pushed into lower value, less remunerative majors like psychology and sociology and so forth, and then graduate into this swirl where they're going after the same job as every other graduate. And there's no real connection between their program of study. As we, you know, circling back to the AI, just going to make it worse, right? If you have like no connection whatsoever to the job or to the industry or the experience, 
you're going to be less likely in five years to be able to be even considered. You probably won't even be you know, interviewed for that job at that point. So it's scandalous. And again, you know, because no one has ever gone broke betting against the pace of change in higher education, this is only going to change uh, once these schools are feeling the pressure as a result of lower enrollments and less revenue. There may be states that begin to amp up accountability. I certainly wouldn't count on accreditors uh, to do it. So it's just going to be driven by economics. And then they'll have to decide what they want to save and what they want to jettison. Clearly, they're not going to jettison you know, computer science and engineering. What will happen is that these schools will be smaller and more focused. A lot of the stuff that currently is essentially you know, profit or surplus generating because these programs are so cheap to deliver will be falling by the wayside because there won't be the demand for those programs in five years that there is today. You know, hearing you say all of this, it also makes me think about high schools. Guidance counselors are incentivized around which programs their students are getting into, name brand for your colleges, you know, pipelining. And there's a, a information asymmetry or just a lack of focus on what's the outcome post-college that we also need to reimagine what junior and senior year look like freshman, sophomore year, what the advising looks like, you know, for students to be successful in navigating this dynamic future, just kind of picking the four-year college as the plug and play thing. It's just become such a repeatable trope for high schools that it's also hard to change them. And I don't know that they actually have changing economic incentives that would force them to reimagine. So like we said, when we were prepping for this, we could talk with you for hours. This was so great to have you on Weekend Ed Tech. Ryan Craig, thanks so much for joining us. You can check out The Gap Letter. Also, the new book, Apprentice Nation. When is that coming out? November 7th. November 7th. I got to make a plug for Ryan's previous two books, which are, I think, as relevant as ever, uh, College Disrupted and A New You, Faster and Cheaper Alternatives. There's still a future that is coming true. They're reaching the realm of classic at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Ryan, for joining the pod. Talk to you soon. Good to see you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of EdTech Insiders. If you like the podcast, remember to rate it and share it with others in the EdTech community. For those who want even more EdTech Insider, subscribe to the free EdTech Insiders newsletter on Substack. This season of EdTech Insiders is brought to you by Tuck Advisors. Tuck Advisors is a trusted name in education M&A, founded by serial entrepreneurs with over 25 years of experience starting, investing in, and selling companies. Tuck Advisors believes founders deserve M&A advisors who work as hard as they do.